Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for uh, the power of your Holy Spirit to be in our midst even now. Not only to enable me to speak uh, your words out of my mouth, but to all of us to hear your words through your Holy Spirit to us today. Give us the grace to see what it is you want us to see and give us the grace to hear what it is you want us to hear by the voice of your Spirit. We make ourselves available, we make ourselves uh, susceptible, and we make ourselves receptacles for the Word of God today. We pray in the name of Jesus, and everybody said, Amen. Here we are, I entitled this, Jesus the Growing Boy. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, after I'd eaten my third plate of food, someone would remark, well, he's just a growing boy. And I look like I'm still eating three plates of food, but I'm not. But uh, I remember those days when I couldn't get enough to eat. And uh, especially the guys and some of the girls can remember when you were 14 or 15 years old, there wasn't a grocery store in town that had enough groceries to keep you from being hungry. The growing boy. We don't think of Jesus as the growing boy. Uh, and, and I think there's a reason that this is in here. So here we are. It's been alluded to on the other side of Christmas Day. We're two days beyond Christmas. It's still officially for a lot of people or technically the Christmas season. But we're two days beyond uh, Christmas Day where we celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus coming as an infant. And so what I wanted to do today was to take a look at a brief period of the life of Jesus, a period beyond the manger. And we, we never want to disparage the manger. We never want to disparage the impact and the value of the manger that it has on our lives. But we do, we also, as I've said often, we do not want to leave Jesus in the manger. He was born as, a, as an infant, but he didn't stay an infant. He was Jesus, the growing boy. And as we go through this, we can observe how, as a growing boy, Jesus exampled for us how we can grow as well. We'll see some lessons and some clues here that will help us as we make our own journey through life. But if, you'll, if you haven't already, and if you'll turn to Luke 2, we're just going to start reading in verse 39. Uh, and if you'd stand while we read this, and I'd like you to, to, to help me this morning. I'd, I'd like you to repeat this after me. I am ready, I am ready. To, receive to receive the Word of God. Word. Because that's why we're here at this moment anyway. We're here to receive the Word of God. And I don't just mean reading the Bible, but that's where it comes from. But I mean the word that comes from God. I'm ready to receive that this morning. I hope you are as well. Now, let me just set this up, and I hope you can stand for another 15 seconds, is that uh, the, uh, Joseph and Mary had brought Jesus to Jerusalem to be circumcised, and they brought him on the eighth day. It was the custom to do that. Uh, interestingly enough, the reason that, you, that they circumcised Boys, on the eighth day is that that was the day that the vitamin K in, in an infant, still true today, allows and provides clotting, blood clotting. Isn't God smart? He told them in the Old Testament, on the eighth day you do this. 
And that's why. Well, I mean, there's probably a lot of other reasons, but one of the main reasons is is a, is a physical reason. So we're beyond that. In verse 39, we take up just after that. So if you'll follow along, this is, I'm reading again from the English Standard Version. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Uh, some of your versions and the margin there will say, in my doing my father's business. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You can be seated. Just beyond the manger. The first thing we notice in this passage is that they returned to Nazareth. But the important part about that they returned to Nazareth is that they had done everything within the bounds of prescribed activity. They knew as, as a young couple, uh, they knew what was prescribed. They knew what was expected with this baby. And even though they knew that he was the Lord Jesus, he was Emmanuel, he was God with us. This was no surprise to them. This was not something they were oblivious to. Even still, even though they were holding the Son of God, they followed what they knew to be prescribed activity and took him to Jerusalem to be circumcised on the eighth day as, as was the, the custom, but also uh, according to the law. By the way, Jesus was a person who was always given to custom. Uh, as a child of the 60s and 70s, I was always uh, prone to, to kick the traditions to the curb and to try to find something different than what everybody was doing. And some of that's good because we should never keep doing something just because everybody else has done it. But we should find out why we're doing what we're doing. But the Bible says, as was his custom, that's Jesus, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. It was his custom to get into the synagogue every Saturday, I guess, and, and, and he stood up to read. And so he learned that, by the way, as an earthly child, he learned that from his parents. The scripture says the child grew. There is so much in those words, so much that's given us in those words, and the child Grew for for one thing, we recognize that Jesus was a child. We don't have much in in the biblical account. We don't have much of an account of Jesus 
as from the time he was circumcised to the time he was 12. We have a big blank area there, but we do have, this fills in that blank, and it says the child grew. We're, we're, all, we're talking about physical growth. Obviously, he grew in a physical way, but he also grew intellectually as, he, as his mind was developed, and he studied all that he studied. So what we have when we see the words, the child grew, and we see that he grew intellectually and physically, what we have is the humanity of Jesus on display. It's important, I ask myself this question, why is this account here? Why did it seem like the Holy Spirit just plugged this in right here at the end uh, after his birth and everything, and then we get into chapter 3 and, and move into some other areas? But why is this here? And I think it's because God wants us to not forget, as Rob said, we forget, not miss that we're dealing with a with the, the Lord Jesus who was very God and very man. And both are important. It's not, it's not uh, good for us to look at the Lord Jesus as a man uh, to the exclusion of being God. And it's vice versa. Sometimes people try to look to the Lord Jesus as God and not as a man when the Scripture is very clear that he was God on the earth. Everybody say God on the earth. He was God when he was in the earth, but he emptied himself of his privileges, the scripture says, so that he could function, but listen, he could function in the earth by the power of the Holy Spirit. I submit to you that Jesus did nothing on the earth as God, but he did everything by the power of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, what, didn't it help him being God? Yes, it did, because he didn't have sin bogging him down. He didn't, he didn't have sin keeping him from obeying the Father. He didn't have sin keeping him from responding when the Holy Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. Did you see what I just said? The Scripture says the Holy Spirit led him, but the Greek there really means he drove him out in the wilderness, not against his will, but he drove him out in the wilderness. Sinful us, we would have fought. We would have said, no, we're not doing that. Sinless Jesus goes with the plan. And he finds himself 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. So I think this account is here so that we can, we can really identify with the Lord Jesus as one of us, as a child, growing, learning. Scripture says that he increased in the favor of God. We'll come back to that. It also says he became strong. The old King James says, there says he waxed strong. And, and the word there doesn't just mean uh, that you can put more weight on the weights than somebody else. Doesn't mean can you press five hundred? I can press six hundred. That's not that's not necessarily what it's talking about. It's talking about to increase in strength and vigor. It's to increase in our ability and our stamina. Uh, it's a uh, it's strength. Really, the word there is strength or vigor that produces action. The ability to produce action in our lives. Now, all of us, every one of us can benefit from God depositing in us and developing in us the ability to have the strength and the vigor that causes action. Because we need, obviously, in our world. I, I want to tell you, though, that the, the, the strength and the vigor that we receive is a work of the Holy Spirit. 
you know, I, I love reading books, but you can't read a book and get strength of the Spirit. I love reading the Scripture, and without the work of the Holy Spirit, you can't get the strength and vigor of the Holy Spirit. But God works in us. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus that he, God, would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man. I submit to you today that we as Christians do not spend enough time relying on God's Holy Spirit. We don't spend enough time looking to the throne of God and asking him through the power of his spirit to help us get through and to do whatever it is we're, we're looking at. We try to do it on our own effort. We try to do it uh, intellectually. We try to do it academically. And all of those are important, extremely important. But without the help and the power of his spirit, it's null and void. Jesus did grow strong before us in the scripture as perfect humanity. He was perfect. He, he, uh, he, he was unimpeded by the defects that you and I have of sin. He was unimpeded. Now, I alluded to this earlier. I think a lot of what Jesus was able to do on the earth because he was completely unimpeded by sin and he was able to respond completely to what God was doing. Without any, without any issues to, to hold him back. And we talk about the strength of God and the strength of Jesus and the, and God working his strength in us. We recognize that it comes through the spirit. Our problem, everybody say our problem. Because it's all of our problem. Our problem is if we don't, when we don't walk in the strength and the vigor of God is because we are getting in the way. We're trying, some, uh, Sean said a while ago about, uh, you know, God's grace is the only way we, in our weakness is the only way we can find God's grace. And I submit to you, one of the reasons this is because if we're not recognizing our weakness, we're trying to do it on our own. The, the most, the biggest insult you can, you can, uh, do before God is to try to do it on your own. The biggest insult you can give God is to say, hey, uh, God, you can go help somebody else. I think I got this. Can I tell you, you don't got this? I don't got this. I know y'all loving my grammar. Because God says, you, you need the power of my spirit. And when we say we can do it, we're saying to God, we got, we don't need you. But the fact is we do. There's a, there's an episode of guess what show? The Andy Griffith show. When Andy says, Andy's trying to teach Opie a lesson. It's called Opie's Metal, by the way, if you want to go watch it. And, um, he's trying to tell, he tells Opie, what would you say? Or it's another episode. I'm sorry. What would you say if I told you that I didn't need you anymore? And Opie immediately as a young child jumps up and says, Paul, that's what he called his dad, by the way, Paul. You do too need me. Well, that's bad grammar, I know, but that's what he said. You do need me. He was upset that his father would indicate that he didn't need him. And I want to submit to us today that we need Jesus. We need the impact in the life of Jesus if we're going to walk in a life of strength. And so I'll make this statement. We'll come back to it later. To the degree we are living crucified in Christ it's to the same degree 
that the life of Christ lives in us and through us. To the degree I can get myself out of the way, to the degree I can lay my life down before God, it's to that same degree that I release that strength that comes through Jesus. We read in Ephesians, that strength that comes through the Lord, I release that in my life. And to the degree of the opposite, that I try to live my own life, it's that same degree that I frustrate what God wants to do in me and through me. It says he was filled with and he was increasing in wisdom. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus, as a, as a growing boy, needed to, to gain and learn wisdom? You know, my mind and your mind probably says, well, now he was God. When he was born, he had wisdom. Well, again, for whatever reason, God's plan was that Jesus would be born a human being. He had all of the things that you, he got tired, he got hungry, he got sleepy, and he grew. The, the child, everybody say grew. As the child grew, there was incremental growth in his life. And he would, the Bible says he was increasing in wisdom, which means he wasn't born with all of it. This is God. He was born needing to increase in wisdom. And by the way, Paul writes to the church of Colossae this, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, to in whom all are, in whom are hidden all, everybody say all, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom, all the treasures of knowledge are hidden, not in a book. I love books. In Jesus Christ. So if I want treasure, the treasure of wisdom, and if I want the treasure of knowledge, what am I going to do? I'm going to access them through fellowship, through the Holy Spirit with Jesus Christ. We miss that. We're trying to, we're trying to find some formula. And the formula is this. It's, it's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. Not just when we get saved. We always talk about having a relationship with Jesus. It's beyond salvation. You've heard me say that when we're born again, we're saved. Uh, when, in the rest of our lives, life, if you've got more than one life, you can say lives, we are being saved. And of course, one day we will be saved. God is saving you your whole life. What is he saving you from? Yourself. Flesh. We're continually being delivered by the power of the Spirit of all the things that would hold us back and keep us down. But wisdom and knowledge is hidden in Christ. What is wisdom? It's simply the right application of knowledge. You've known people, I've known people who knew what to do, but they didn't know how to do it. They didn't know how to apply that knowledge. And they always have to get themselves out of trouble. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God. It's, a, it's real complicated. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally, and watch this, without reproach, and it will be given to him. Without reproach. What is he saying? He's assuring us that God gives without reminding us of our unworthiness. God doesn't say, well, I got a test for you, and if you'll pass the test, I'll give you wisdom. That's not what he says. He said, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. If you have some knowledge that you know you need to know what to do with, ask God to be able to apply that the way Jesus did when he was a growing boy. 
It goes on to say that he increased in favor or grace. A lot of your versions will say there with God and man. He increased with grace or increased with favor. Again, increased. He's a growing boy. And he continued to increase in grace, which is just is graciousness or or goodwill. Or it could be it could describe the benefits flowing from those. Uh, one good definition of, of this is to Call it the disposition to offer aid or a special or unusual blessing. And Jesus experienced this in an increasing measure when he was a growing boy. Now, uh, we talk about grace, uh, we talk about favor, and we often uh, want to define grace as unmerited favor. And I submit to you today that that is not a wrong definition but it is an incomplete definition. There's more to grace than just unmerited favor. For one thing, Jesus would not have needed unmerited favor. My friend James Ryle taught me that, who's in heaven now. He would not have needed unmerited. So what did he need? He needed that blessing from God, that force. Here, here we go. Grace, according to Thayer's Greek definition, says grace is the merciful kindness by which God exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtues. So it's not just an unmerited favor that causes us to be saved. Yes, we are saved by grace. But he continues, he keeps us, and he strengthens us. Everything we receive from God comes through the strength of grace. From, from an unusual or special blessing. Again, referring to our brother James Ryle, who's spoken here many times over, down through the years. James liked to say that grace is the empowering presence of God, enabling you to be who he created you to be and to do what he has called you to do. Empowering. Everybody say empowering. It's, in, it's, a, it's the empowering presence of God or for Star Wars fans, may the force be with you. What force? The force of God's empowering presence. That's God's grace. You you have something you're facing, you need empowering presence. You have a decision that you need to make, you need empowering presence. You got you God's called you to be something or do something. How in the world are you ever going to accomplish that? By the empowering presence of God. That's the only way you can. And Jesus grew in this in favor with God and with man. Which brings us to the, the last part. I would say in closing, but we're, too, we're not far enough away from closing to get your hopes up. Uh, and that is that we see that Jesus was consecrated to the Father. Consecrated to the Father. We, we read the story that they go to Jerusalem for the Passover. By the way, isn't it interesting that, the, that they go to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of Passover, not knowing that traveling with them is the eternal Passover lamb? They don't know that. They know he's Jesus. They know he's God. They have no clue that this guy, this kid, walking with them one day soon or one day in a few years is going to be, as the Scripture describes him, the eternal Passover lamb, the last one ever to be necessary. 
That just blows my mind, and my mind can't stand much blowing. Yeah, you can go ahead and laugh. So they travel, they do the feast. We don't, they don't even describe what the feast looks like, and then they're ready to leave, and they go. And, of course, back then, they would have traveled in a large caravan of people, traveled back home, and they're traveling along. And, and uh, I remember one time when and we were living in Mobile, Alabama, I hope, it's, I hope the uh, statute of limitations are, are have gone. But uh, <clears throat> my wife and her sisters and her mother and a bunch of folks got out of the car to go into the mall. And they got into the mall. This would have been 1985. They got into the mall and, and somebody said, uh, who's got Nate? So Nate would have been one. Who's got Nate? And they started looking around. No Nate. Everybody thought the other one had Nate. Yeah, he was in the car with the doors locked, and he was sweating. But you can't arrest us now because he's he's doing just fine. <laughs> this is kind of what happened because they thought so. Is that they've got Jesus over there? Well, they no, he's he's not there. Well, he, they must have him. No, they, so they started looking around the caravan. No Jesus, and they finally decided that they made, they need to turn around and go back. And it wasn't a short journey. It is interesting to me that when they got back to Jerusalem, they spent three days. Everybody say three days. <laughs> three days before they ever went to the temple. Now, we're on this side of this story, so we, we have an advantage that they didn't have. But if I, I don't know, I just, I want to think that if I'm traveling with a 12-year-old child or young man, that God has told me through an angel is the son of God and is God and is God with us. I, I would want to think that at some point I would think to myself before three days, well, maybe we ought to check at the temple. I mean, he is God with us after all. They didn't think that way. So after three days, they go to the temple and they find him. Now, it's interesting, the wording there. I'm going to go back and look at it again. It's interesting what it says. It says, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, watch this, listening to them. You're God. You're the son of God. You go to the temple, and you. you the next part, if we're writing this, is that you stand up on a, a, a box, and you start telling everybody, because you're God. But that's not what it says. It says, after three days... They found him sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Can you imagine God asking you questions? Well, don't expect it to happen, by the way. This was a boy. This was Jesus, a growing boy. He's 12 years old, and he goes to the temple, and he's asking these questions. But then the next thing is, is even more interesting, the next verse. It says, and they were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So evidently, he's asking them questions, and they're asking him questions back. And they were astonished at his ability to answer these questions. And then Joseph and Mary show up, and there he is, sitting among the teachers. And Mary responds, like a lot of mothers would, What in the round world have you been doing? That's another version, by the way. That's not the one I read. 
we've been looking for you. You know why she, she was upset? She was scared. She, you know, I've misplaced God. I got answers to somebody. What, what, what have you, what, you were, we've worried sick about you. We've been looking all over the place. And I don't know at this point, I don't know if Jesus is thinking, silly woman, have you not figured out who I am? I don't know. But he did say, don't you know, in this version, it says, don't you know that I must be in my father's house? Now, I don't think, and I don't think the scripture holds true, that he's talking about that particular structure. The old King James says that I would be about my father's business. The real Greek there really just says that I would be in my father. The rest of it's omitted in the manuscripts. And the intent is that he would be about his father's affairs, that he would be about the business of his father's kingdom. Don't you know? Haven't you figured out? And I don't think he's saying it in such a way that, and we'll see that in a moment. I don't think he's saying it in such a way that you big dummy, you haven't figured this out yet. I mean, that's what I would have done. But I, I'm not Jesus. Y'all might have noticed. Anybody notice? Come on now. I got sons in the room. I'm not Jesus. I would have said, you big dummy. But Jesus says, I need to be about my father's business. He's 12 years old, by the way. How many of your 12-year-olds are saying that? He was realizing at that moment, had realized at that moment, that he was consecrated for service to the Father. I don't know at what point Jesus realized this. I don't know what point from the time he was uh, in the manger to this point. I don't know at what point he begins to realize I don't think he was born knowing he was the son of God, but I think at some point he begins to see, because we see him increasing, 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 and he's, he's a growing boy. But at some point he begins to realize that he's consecrated to God the Father. And at the age of 12 in the Jewish community, a Jewish boy would become what they call the, a son of the law. That's when he became a son of the law, and he would begin to work to observe the requirements of the law, and he would even wear the little boxes, phylacteries that they would wear with scriptures in them at that age. Verse 49, by the way, and just in case you're interested in that kind of a thing, verse 49 is the first recorded words of Jesus in scripture. Now, you can't count. Uh, when he was talking, I believe when he, when he said, I'm the captain of the Lord's host to Joshua, that was the Lord Jesus, but it wasn't, wasn't the earthly Lord Jesus. This is the first recorded words of Jesus. And then another thing that you can't miss, I'll read it again. I have it in my notes, but I'll read it again. It's verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Growing boy. He was submissive to them. God, you have God in your home, and he's submissive to you. Whoo, how humbling can that be? How scary can that be? I, you know, it might have been the mercy of God that they didn't fully understand. Because it says, when he said, I must be about my father's business or about my father's house, the scripture says they didn't know what he was talking about. They just, they listened. It says, Mary treasured everything up. But he was submissive 
to them. And then he realized that he was consecrated. To consecrate is a word that means to place before or setting before in plain view. It's to take your life and to set it in, a, in, in this context, to set it before God. And, and it also presupposes deliberation on your part. You don't just hastily present something to God because you want to be able by the grace of God to present it and leave it. And, but it's, it's the taking of something and putting it in plain view. Uh, a great example of this is the marriage covenant. You come to the marriage altar and you as a bride or you as a groom, you stand before one another and you have presented yourself in plain view. Not only of the bride and the groom, but everyone in the audience. You've presented yourself in plain view and your statement that you're making, even before you say a word, the statement that you're making is that you're consecrating yourself to the other person. Consecrated. And it's the same way when we're consecrated before God, we place ourselves in plain view of him and sometimes other people. And we say to God, I am holy, H-W-H-O-L-L-Y, yours. I'm consecrated. Everything or everyone consecrated to God is separated from personal agendas to God's divine purpose. Separated from our own world, separated from what we want, separated from what we think is right, and we consecrate ourselves to his purpose. And so we're going to finish up with observations regarding consecration because I believe this is one of the most impactful parts of this story is that when we see the the consecration of the Lord Jesus to his Father, that he gives us that example that we would consecrate ourselves, and many of us have and some of us to varying degrees. But I want to tell you in the days ahead, I want to tell you that in the days ahead, only those who have fully consecrated themselves to the Lord Jesus. Only those are really going to see victory. You you thought I was going to say that was the only one that's going to go to heaven. I'm not going to say that. But only those who consecrated themselves to God are going to be able to live in victory in the world that's ahead of us. By the way, I hope next Sunday to preach the title of my message next Sunday. I don't know what the content will be, but the title (laughs) will be God Made 2020. I go to the bank on Monday, make the deposit for the church, and they say, man, how you doing? This is Monday. Oh, it's Monday. Oh, God, it's Monday. They don't like it probably too much, but I tell them, hey, you know, God made Mondays too. He didn't just make six days. He made seven days. God made 2020, but anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Observations regarding consecration. The first one is consecration doesn't regard self. It's very simple. We just read that, that that it's separated from personal agendas to God's divine purpose. Consecration doesn't regard self or self-agenda or self-centeredness or selfish ambition. None of that. If I see one more LSU player make a tackle and run out in the middle of the field and strut, I would love to go out there and kick his all over that field. 
Selfish ambitions, what that is. Look at me. I said LSU players, so y'all just leave me alone. Your, your teams do it too. We recognize his purpose for us during times we would otherwise seek indulgence for our self-interest or run from the demanding implications of his leading at a given moment. It's that time that we, we present ourselves to Christ in a crucified manner. Paul said, I die daily. Why is that? Because we leak. Because as, a, as sacrifice to God on the table of sacrifice, on the altar of sacrifice, we often and maybe always get back off the altar. We jump off the altar and then we got to die again and we get off. We die daily. Consecration finds purpose in another. Or in another's purpose. Consecration finds its purpose outside of us. Outside of our world. Consecration cleanses us. All of us remember that moment or moments when we have presented ourselves afresh in consecration to God. In saying to God, I am yours. I belong to you and I submit myself to your purpose and your agenda. All of us know that feeling of being cleansed when you do that. For one of the things, you're being cleansed of yourself and your flesh. Not only does consecration cleanse us, it sanctifies our activities. What we do from then on, what we put our hand to from then on becomes sanctified by God. Because if, in fact, you have consecrated yourself before God and you have laid yourself on the altar, then you're not going to run out and start doing stuff against God's prescribed way of life. Your activities will be sanctified. Consecration causes our mind to be singular on him and his purpose. Focus. Him and him only. Now, this this will play out in all aspects of life. This will play out in vocation. This will play out in, in ministry. This will play out in every area, recreation. This plays out in every facet of our life. It doesn't make us become a monk. My wife and I have been watching monk. He's not a real monk, I can tell you that. But it doesn't make you just hibernate off into a corner waiting for Jesus to return. But it affects every part of your life. Come, worship team, come and let's finish up. The last uh, observation about consecration is that it helps us to live in Galatians 2.20. It helps us to live in that place that I am crucified with Christ Nevertheless, it's Christ who lives in me. And I'll finish up with this question as the worship team's getting ready. <clears throat> Do you not know that you must be about your father's business? Do you not know that you must be about your father's affairs? And if you're not, then there's no time to start better than now. No better time. They're going to sing Galatians 2.20. And I want us to observe the words and ask God to help us through our consecration to him to live in that verse, to live in these words. And let this be our prayer 
and our statement of faith. As we close out today, we close out uh, 2020. And, and, of course, next Sunday will be a new year. But as we do that, let us ask God to help us live where this where this uh, song says, Stand. to sing the scripture. I hope this sticks in your heart today as you go. I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave his life for me. Who loved me? Who loved me? Loved me and gave his life for me. Yes, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. All from the top again. I have been crucified. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave his life for me. Who loved me, who loved me. Oh, who loved me and gave his life for me. Yes, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave his life for me. I hope that one catches in your spirit and you go along singing that all day long. It's hard to quote this uh, scripture without singing the song. I'm just telling you, uh, since I learned this a long time ago. Let's do it again from the top, and then we're going to dismiss here. I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave his life for me. Who loved me? The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave His life for me. I'll play it, boys. You're dismissed in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hey, walk in Christ today. Be blessed. With Christ, nevertheless, I live. Yet not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave his life for me. Who loved me, who loved me, who loved me and gave his life for me. Oh, yeah, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave his life for me Who loved me and gave his life for me